This, this evening, the title of my sermon is Finding a Wife for Isaac. Finding a Wife for Isaac. We're looking at Genesis chapter 24. Last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 23, which records details of the death of of Abraham's wife Sarah, who died when she was 127 years of age, according to chapter 23 and verse 1. Sorry about this, a bit of arithmetic here, I, I can't help it, I can't help myself, some of you might be interested in this. Sarah was 127 when she died. That would mean that Abraham, who was 10 years older than her, was 137 when she died. It would also mean that they'd been married for at least 62 years. I say that because Sarah was 65, Abraham was 75 when they came out of the Ur of the Chaldees. And um, so she was 65. She died when she was 127. That means they'd been married for at least 62 years. We also considered Abraham's sorrow and Sarah's burial last week. Moving on now to chapter 24, Abraham, who according to verse 1, was very old and well stricken in age, sent his eldest servant on a very, very long camel ride, perhaps 500 miles. It's reckoned by the scholars that it could have been 500 miles. That's a long way to go on the back of a camel. You know, I've spent a couple of hours on the back of a camel in India and that was more than enough for me. But at that time, Abraham was old and well stricken in age. He sent his eldest servant, who was probably an old man, as we're going to see in a moment, on that long camel ride from Hebron to the promised uh, land of Canaan, to Nahor in Abraham's homeland of Mesopotamia. And the reason for sending his servant there was to find a wife for Abraham's son Isaac. A wife who had to be a descendant of his brother Nahor. Abraham wanted for his son Isaac a wife who was from his own kindred. And for those of you who might be wondering how old Abraham was, how old he actually was when he was old and well stricken in age well a quick glance to chapter 25 verse 20 tells us that Isaac was 40 Isaac was 40 at the time and we all know how old um, Abraham was when Isaac was born 100 so that means that Abraham was 140 years old when he sent his elderly servant on that mission to the promised land Anyway, first of all, first thing we're going to consider is the servant took an oath before his departure. Let's have a look again at verses 2 through to 4. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh. And I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. 
But thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. If you go back about 54 years to chapter 15 and verse 2, Eliezer of Damascus was the steward of Abraham's house and it's thought by many of the commentators that this servant that uh, Abraham sent to uh, on the mission to the promised land was that Eliezer of Damascus. We don't really know that to be the case but if it was him he, wa- he was an, an old man because as I say what happened in chapter 15 was about 54 years earlier. So the servant was certainly an old man. Before the servant went on his journey, Abraham made him swear that he would not take a wife from the Canaanites for Isaac. The Canaanites were an idolatrous people who would in time to come be dispossessed of the land and they would be destroyed by Abraham's descendants, the children of Israel. And guess what? Abraham knew all that. After all, when the Lord called him out of Mesopotamia and made promises to him back in chapter 12, verse 2, the Lord said, I will make thee a great nation. And expanding upon those words in chapter 15, the Lord said to Abraham, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, and the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephaims, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites. They're in there as well, the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So the Lord's telling Abraham back in chapter 15 that all all that land would be given unto his seed. He knew that to be the case. Abraham clearly did not want for his son a wife who was one of the daughters of the accursed Canaanites. Abraham's resolve that a wife for Isaac should be taken from the land of his kindred and not from Canaan, was so strong that he required his servant to swear by the Lord God of heaven and earth and to put his hand under Abraham's thigh as he swore that oath. Therefore the servant put himself under the oath, under oath to the only true God, Jehovah, and his complete subjection to Abraham and to the God of Abraham was seen in him putting his hand under Abraham's thigh. That was a sign of subjection to Abraham and ultimately to the Lord God, Jehovah, God of Abraham. What can be seen happening was that a marriage was being arranged by a father for his son. Having lived in India for five years, I'm very familiar with arranged marriages In all communities, I say all communities, that includes in Christian communities as well. Usually, as one one might expect, marriages are arranged by parents. Furthermore, pastors take on the role of arranging marriages for people in their churches. As can be seen in Genesis chapter 24, 
Arranged marriages have been around for a very long time. And whether Isaac was aware of it or not, his father was busy arranging his marriage. It's fair to say that whether a marriage is arranged by parents or not, there is merit in, at the very least, involving godly parents and seeking their approval and praying with them concerning the marriage that is to take place. I, th- I, I believe that that is certainly a commendable thing. I've departed a little bit from the text here, but committing your marriage to your parents. Godly parents, of course. And ultimately, you all pray to God who instituted the marriage relationship when at the beginning he made the male and female and said, for this cause, a man sh- sh- uh, shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they twain shall be one flesh. It is etched very clearly in my mind, something I'll never forget. I forget a lot of things, but this is very clear in my mind. The time that I sat in a Chinese restaurant in India about 24 years ago and I very nervously asked Pauline's father for his approval and permission to marry his daughter. And his reply to me was, I thought you'd never ask. But I did think it was important to seek his approval and consent. That leads on to the next consideration. Abraham's servant prayed to the Lord. Let's look at verses 10 through to 14. And the servant took ten camels of the camels of his master and departed, for all the goods of his master were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia unto the city of Nahor. And he made his camels to kneel down without the city, by a well of water at the time of the evening, even the time that women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Reading that makes me think that the Lord God of Abraham was also the the Lord God of that servant as well. Seems like a very godly man to me. Anyway, let's carry on with this. Verse 13, Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. And let it come to pass, that the damsel to whom I shall say, Let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. And she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. You can see there that servant committing everything to the Lord. So when finally Abraham's servant arrived in the city of Nahor, Mesopotamia, after that long journey, he made his ten camels kneel down and he prayed concerning the assignment that his master had sent him on. It's reasonable to say that the servant recognised the importance of taking back to Canaan God's choice. Certainly Abraham, what he, he had respect to what Abraham had said to him about um, 
finding a wife from his kindred, but ultimately here in this prayer, we're seeing that he sought God's choice of a wife for Isaac. And that is reflected in his prayer. For example, in verse 14, the servant prayed, let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And that's really what matters, isn't it? More than anything else. Looking for uh, the the God's will to be done. With regards to the specifics of the prayer, the servant prayed to the Lord that when he shall ask a damsel to give him water, not only would she give him water, but without being prompted to, without being asked to, she would give water to his ten camels. Uh, It would seem that he was asking for a sign that would serve as a confirmation to him that he really had encountered God's choice of a wife for Isaac. He wanted to be sure that it was God's choice. He wouldn't be the only one to have ever sought and be given a sign or some kind of confirmation from the Lord. About 400 years later, Gideon put out a fleece when God appointed him to lead Israel out of cruel subjection uh, to the Midianites. He was looking for confirmation that deliverance of Israel would be under his leadership. He wasn't doubting the deliverance. He knew that God would deliver Israel. He just wanted to be sure that it would be under his leadership. As I explained on Wednesday at the Bible study, he was a nobody amongst the Israelites and uh, he just wanted to be sure it would be him. That much is clear from the following words that Gideon said to the Lord. Then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by my hand. Maybe you've prayed to the Lord seeking a sign or confirmation about a major decision, perhaps concerning your choice of career, or maybe a change in career. Maybe about um, what you're going to study at university or school or whatever. Or maybe about marriage. That said, we need to guard against seeing everything as a sign from God. Also, if a sign is claimed to have been given somehow or other, giving a Christian the green light to do something that is not scriptural, that sign is to be rejected. Because God does not contradict himself. He does not contradict his word. An example of that since we're looking at marriage tonight, an example of a sign that is to be rejected is when the Christian says, God has told me that it's all right for me to marry so-and-so, where so-and-so is an unbeliever. Reject it, because it's not scriptural. It does not agree with the doctrine in the Bible concerning separation. Thirdly, we can look at an answer to prayer, looking at verse 15. And it came to pass, before he had done speaking, that, behold, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher on her shoulder. 
the Lord's choice of wife for Isaac came to the well and the servant would end up having no doubt about it whatsoever. For one thing, God graciously granted what the servant asked for, even whilst he was still praying to the Lord, as it's written in verse 15. And it came to pass, before he had done speaking, he was still praying, that behold, Rebekah came out. And not only did she give water to the servant when he asked for it, but also, without being asked to, she gave water to the ten camels that were with the servant. She gave those ten camels water without being asked. And there's some significance in that, in uh, ten camels. I did a bit of research and um, suffice to say, camels drink a tremendous amount of water. They really do. They drink gallons of the stuff. And, and she gave water not only to that servant, but to the ten camels. When the servant inquired whose daughter she was, she said in verse 24, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, which he bore unto Nahor. Nahor was Abraham's brother. And that perfectly fulfilled the desire of Abraham, who said to his servant before sending him off, Thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. We can learn something about Rebekah, who was soon to become Isaac's wife. According to verse 16, she was very fair to look upon. First thing you see in verse 16, very fair to look upon. In other words, she was beautiful. Like Isaac's mother, Sarah, who was also beautiful. So was his future wife, beautiful. Also, Rebecca was kind, she was considerate, not only to Abraham's servant, but, here we go again, to his animals. She was industrious or hard-working. I say that because as a, because those um, camels drink so much water, it would have been, ex- it would have been truly a, a, a lot of work giving water, drawing water out of a well, putting it in a trough, enough water to, to give water to ten camels. She did all that without being asked. So she was clearly a very industrious and a very caring person. What followed was that the servant was given hospitality at Rebecca's family home. He explained everything to her father Bethuel and to her brother Laban. Rebecca travelled back to Canaan with the servant, but not before Laban and her mother, Rebecca's mother, asked the servant to let Rebecca abide for a few days, according to verse 55. If you look at verse 55 there. And her brother and her mother said, Let the damsel abide with us a few days, at at the least ten, after that she shall go. I've got something in the side, in the centre margin. If you've got a King James Bible and you've got a centre margin, you'll see that it could be written a full year or ten months. So, obviously, I wanted to see what that was all about. Um, was it a few days? Was it a full year, ten months? What, what was it now? 
Apparently it was a custom for damsels who were promised in marriage to abide with the family for for 10 years up to a month before being married. And uh, that's what Laban, her brother, and also her mother wanted her to do. That's what they were asking for. However, the servant said to them, Hinder me not, seeing the Lord hath prospered my way. Then they inquired of Rebekah, and she said, I will go. Fourthly, we can look at Rebekah's family bidding her farewell. They bid her farewell in, in verse 60. And they blessed Rebekah and said unto her, Thou art our sister, be thou the mother of thousands of millions, and let thy seed possess the gate of those which hate them. Clearly they are prophetic words, and how much of that the family actually understood of it, I don't know. But they spoke prophetically there. And what they said was in line with chapter 13, verse 16, where the Lord said to Abraham, And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. They also, those words, those prophetic words in verse 60, they're also synonymous with chapter 15 and verse 5, where the word of God said to Abraham, look now towards heaven and tell the stars or count the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. Also there's that time back in chapter 22 when the Lord tested Abraham and what followed was that Abraham took his son, his only son Isaac, whom he loved, to Moriah to offer him as a burnt offering. After the angel of the Lord intervened and stopped Abraham from slaying his son, the angel said to him, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of its of his enemies. Very, very similar to verse 60 in our passage tonight. The gate of his enemies or the gate of those which hate him, in verse 60. What I'm getting at is that when Rebecca's family were saying their goodbyes to her, they were invoking God's uh, promise to Abraham that in him and his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham's natural descendants, the children of Israel, who descended from Isaac and Rebekah, possessed the gate of their enemies when they overcame and destroyed the Canaanites about 400 years later. However, ultimately, the thousands of millions or the stars in the sky or all the sand, the grains of sand on the seashore is a reference to the multitude who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
people who were baptised in him, having trusted in him for the forgiveness of all their sins, trusting in him for everlasting life throughout history. Christ is Abraham's seed and by his death on the cross and by his resurrection, he has made all of you who are trusting in him more than conquerors over sin, Satan and death. And when you look at the stars at night on a, on a clear night, you look at those stars in the sky, let that be a reminder to you of the, 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 the thousands of millions or all those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. His church, in other words. And you're one of them. You see those stars up there? And there you, and you're one of them. How beautiful that is. And I know I've said it so many times and I'll say it again. One of the most spectacular sights I've ever seen. When I was lying on the desert floor in Rajasthan in India. And I just looked up in the sky and wow, you know, God's firework display or whatever you want to call it, stars everywhere. And that spoke volumes about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such a wonderful sight that was. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Number five, Rebecca became Isaac's wife. The, the uh, verses sixty-one through to sixty-seven. So we're getting there, sixty-one to sixty-seven. And Rebecca arose, and her damsels, and they rode upon the camels and followed the man. And the servant took Rebecca and went his way. And Isaac came from the way of the well of Lahorai, for he dwelt in the south country. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the eventide and he lifted up his eyes and saw and behold the camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes and when she saw Isaac she lighted off the camel. For she had said unto the servant, what man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, it is my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into his mother's Sarah's tent and took Rebekah and she became his wife. And he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. By the way, a bit more arithmetic there. I'd worked that out. She'd been dead about three years by then. But anyway... Isaac went out to meditate upon the Lord's goodness and mercy. He lifted up his eyes and he saw the camels coming with a beautiful woman on one of those camels. The timing was perfect as one might expect when it's God's timing. Any possibility of that elderly servant and that beautiful woman being ambushed on that 500 mile or whatever it was journey by bandits, forget it. It just wasn't going to happen, was it? When you think about it. When you appreciate that, she, that Rebecca was God's choice to be Isaac's wife and the mother of thousands of millions. 
She was on one of those camels. The servant was on another camel. Perhaps there were others as well. I'm sure there would have been other people. But ultimately, the Lord was with them on that journey. As for their marriage and its consummation, I like what Albert Barnes said. And I'll quote Barnes. All things were evidently done in the fear of God as became those who were to be the progenitors of the seed of promise. We have here a description of the primeval marriage. It is a simple taking of a woman for a wife before all witnesses and with suitable feelings and expression of reverence towards God and of a desire for his blessing. It is a pure and holy relation reaching back into the realms of innocence and fit to be the emblem of the humble, confiding, affectionate union between the Lord and his people. No doubt Isaac and Rebecca glorified the Lord God of heaven and earth in their marriage relationship, a relationship that he had arranged, the Lord had arranged and brought them into, a relationship in which they cleave together as one flesh. Finally, what we have considered this evening is a marriage made in heaven, resulting in the promised seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, being a descendant according to the flesh, according to the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, a descendant of Isaac and Rebekah, of particular interest to all of you, should be the fact that the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and his church, which consists of all the thousands of millions of people throughout history who have trusted in him as their saviour from sin, that also was arranged by God from start to finish. I trust you've seen it with the marriage between Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, arranged from start to finish by God. There's no doubt about it. So it is the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ, his church and all the individual Christians that make up that church has been arranged by God from start to finish. Each and every one of you who is trusting in Jesus as your saviour from sin was chosen by God before the foundation of the world and in the fullness of time, in God's perfect time. God drew you to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, with loving kindness. The relationship that exists between the Lord Jesus Christ and his church as a whole is so close and so special that the Apostle Paul refers to it in his instructions to husbands and wives. To husbands, the Apostle Paul says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And to wives, Paul says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. There is... However, a big difference between the marriage relationship 
between husbands and wives and the relationship that exists between the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. We see the parallels, but there's a big difference as well. As special and as intimate as the marriage relationship is between a husband and wife, it is not everlasting. We saw that to be the case last week in chapter 23 with the death and burial of Sarah and with the tears of Abraham. Also, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world, and that world is the heavenly and eternal world, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. No marriage in heaven. (coughs) However, The relationship that exists between God and all who have trusted in his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as their saviour, trusting in Jesus, that is an everlasting relationship. It's forever and ever. That means that death can be seen as a doorway to heaven and most of all, a doorway into the presence of the one who is altogether lovely, the Lord Jesus As the Apostle Paul said, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We see that marriage is, well, what do we say at a marriage, when people get married, till death us do part? How different it is the relationship that exists between Jesus and his redeemed. It's forever. Isn't that wonderful? Seriously, it's beautiful. Having an everlasting relationship with your maker, a relationship in which you belong to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has reconciled you to God, having carried and taken away all your sins in his own body at the cross. It's a relationship in which you know and address the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ as your God and Father. That's the kind of relationship it is. There is no better relationship than that. And that's why I say it should concern all of you in here, even those of you who have at the moment no interest in the Saviour's blood. Well, you ought to. You ought to be interested to know that you can be reconciled with with God. And by that I mean you are in rebellion against God at the moment, but that can be changed. Peace can be achieved. It has been achieved at the cross for all who trust in Jesus Christ as their saviour from sin. There is no better relationship and it is one that starts when by the grace of God you show repentance towards God and you show faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will give you, a hell-deserving sinner, the great privilege of becoming a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Amen.